Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, I'm George Lopez, the Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, CSC, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies here at the Croc Institute. I'm also the co-editor of the latest issue of Peace Policy with David Courtright. Peace Policy is a quarterly publication of the Kroc Institute that offers research-based insights, commentary, and solutions to the global challenge of violent conflict. This issue of Peace Policy focuses on the role of economic sanctions. Since the end of the Cold War, economic sanctions have become an essential instrument of global and national foreign policy, imposed to end civil wars and thwart nuclear proliferation, mass atrocities, and terrorism. But over the past decade, sanctions have become entangled in at least eight major humanitarian disasters. The articles in this issue explore the use of maximum pressure sanctions in three distinct contexts. Iran, Syria, and Venezuela. And they suggest policy solutions and strategies to make sanctions an effective tool while mitigating their negative humanitarian impacts. I'm being joined today by my co-authors for this issue in each of the case studies. Esfanyara Batman Halijd is the founder and CEO of Borsan Bazaar Foundation and wrote on the economic impact of sanctions on Iran. Francisco Rodriguez is the 2021-2022 International Affairs Fellow in International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's Director of Oil for Venezuela. His essay deals with sanctions in Venezuela. And finally, Annie Sharif is the Program Associate with the Carter Center's Conflict Resolution Program and their Syria Project team. She co-authored her article on the impact of economic sanctions on Syria with fellow members of the project, Stasia George, Herrera Balian, and Nancy Azar. Let me begin with a little background and questions. We know that despite being aimed at a targeted government or a particular economic sector of a nation as a whole, economic sanctions always have intended and unintended negative impacts on the civilian population. That said, I find that one of the unique aspects of the work of each of you here Yar and Francisco, and then Annie and her team, is that your research has moved beyond a litany of sometimes terrible, visible consequences of sanctions to isolating one or two dominant economic conditions that lead to these devastating impacts on the innocent. So my first question is, I'll begin by asking each of you to talk a little bit about what in your study seemed to drive the painful socio economic downward spiral for ordinary people in each of the contexts you wrote about. Yara, let's begin with you. Thank you, George. Well, in the case of Iran, I think one thing to highlight is that it is a distinct case and quite different from Venezuela and Syria and other sanctions cases. Because when we are trying to isolate the impact of sanctions on ordinary people, we have to do so keeping in mind that Iran's economy has actually demonstrated a surprising amount of resilience in the face of sanctions. So broadly speaking, Iran's economy, after the initial shock of when sanctions are imposed, at which point 
the country does experience a significant contraction, largely because oil exports are constrained. We move into a situation where there's an adjustment and the economy can even show an ability to generate kind of low levels of growth under U.S. secondary sanctions or under multilateral sanctions programs. But beyond that kind of macroeconomic resilience, you have to look at the resilience of society. And here's where you get a pretty different picture. For millions of Iranian households, sanctions are a significant contributor to a loss in their general welfare, a diminishment of their standard of living. And the reason is basically one kind of economic phenomenon that probably is the most important out of all of the impacts of sanctions on Iran's economy, and that's inflation. Essentially, ordinary Iranians have had to contend with the everyday goods that they depend on becoming significantly more expensive because of really two ways in which sanctions impact the affordability of goods. The first is that inflation is stoked because uh, sanctions create a fiscal challenge for the government. And the government in Iran, like in many countries that face these kinds of challenges, uh, has historically responded by printing money, which increases the money supply and contributes to inflation. But the other kind of impact, which I think has gotten less attention over the years, is that sanctions create significant disruptions to supply chains. And this is something that should be familiar or you know, sort of of interest to people right now outside of Iran who are seeing how supply chain disruptions related to the pandemic have contributed to significant levels of inflation in Europe and in the US and in other countries. But you know, if you consider the way that sanctions kind of impact a country like Iran, it's a permanent disruption to supply chains. Fewer countries and companies are willing to supply Iran, so you have a constraint from that side. And even when you do have suppliers, companies that are willing to sell goods uh, to Iranian importers, uh, the challenges associated with making that trade, limited banking channels, limited uh, logistics providers, mean that those goods are more expensive when they finally arrive in Iran. And those increased costs are passed on to consumers. So to put some numbers behind this, we're talking about a situation where in the past year, Iranians are facing uh, annual inflation rates approaching 60%. So the goods that Iranians are buying today, in, let's say in the supermarket, are 60% more expensive than they were just one year ago. And if you consider the other economic impacts of sanctions related to low levels of growth, so let's say contribution to the unemployment rates, you have uh, wage stagnation, you have generally a lack of kind of new economic opportunities, then something like these price increases becomes very difficult for households to manage. They have to tap into their savings to kind of keep their standard of living. And at some point, they run out of room, they run out of resources. And you increasingly hear families in Iran of really uh, taking a hit, including uh, families that uh, were solidly working class falling below the poverty line. And that's something that has significant consequences for Iranian society long term. So to summarize, I'd say that in the case of Iran, the impact that I think is uh, worthy of the most attention, has the most political and social significance, are these uh, sort of persistent high rates of inflation that make it difficult for ordinary families to maintain the standard of living that they had gotten used to. 
So in the case of Venezuela, we're talking about a country that is undergoing the largest economic crisis experienced in modern Latin American history. And one of the largest economic crises experienced in modern world history, actually, it's the second largest in peacetime in a country that's not undergoing war. And what's clear about this crisis is that began before sanctions, but that it was very strongly exacerbated by sanctions. Definitely, the crisis had to do its beginning with the mismanagement of an oil boom uh, by Hugo Chavez and by his successor, Nicolas Maduro. But when oil prices started recovering at around 2017, uh, the Venezuelan economy should have begun to recover. And that's not what we saw. What we saw is that the economy continued on a tailspin. And that was precisely the moment at which the first sanctions were imposed, uh, financial sanctions in 2017. And what the research shows is that sanctions hit the oil sector directly and very strongly. And oil generates 96% of Venezuelan foreign exchange revenue. So what happened was very clear. The country could no longer export its oil. The oil firm could uh, no longer import essential inputs and production started falling. Therefore, when oil prices started recovering, the economy couldn't recover and the economy continued in that tailspin. In essence, we're talking about a country that is very highly dependent on its oil sector, very highly dependent on the foreign exchange revenue that it generates, and that when it's left without these revenues, it has no money left to import anything, including very essential goods, including food, including medicine. And so all of these imports saw massive cuts, and that's what drove the economic contraction. Now, this happens in Venezuela also in context where you have a very contested politics, and there's a huge legitimacy crisis. The opposition considers that Nicolas Maduro is illegitimate and shouldn't be in government, and has tried to drive him uh, from power. And the United States, Europe, and many of the countries that are imposing sanctions have supported the opposition. So we also see a very highly politicized debate where there are two groups that are vying to triumph in the interpretation uh, of what's going on. One of them, the government wants to blame sanctions entirely, while the opposition wants to blame the government entirely and to exculpate sanctions. And many times, some of these groups try to put us into the context of a discussion where it's one or the other, where there are only unicausal explanations, uh, where either sanctions are to blame uh, or mismanagement by the Maduro government are to blame, is to blame. And the reality is that there's no reason why both things couldn't have contributed. And what the evidence tell us, tells us is that both aspects contributed, that both the mismanagement by the government and the sanctions have made life much harder for Venezuelans. For the Syria case, sanctions have significantly contributed to the impact on Syrian civilians by burdening the operations of humanitarian actors and intensifying the already dire strain on the Syrian economy. Before delving into the impact of sanctions, it is important to note that there are multiple factors that have contributed to the current humanitarian and economic crisis in Syria, ranging from the war to the mismanagement of resources and corruption and the collapse of the Lebanese banking sector. However, research does indicate that comprehensive sanctions are inhibiting the humanitarian response in Syria. Despite the existence of humanitarian exceptions to sanctions, international INGOs are persistently running into hurdles when trying to implement their projects. 
Sanctions threaten humanitarian efforts in Syria from several perspectives. They impose significant additional costs and delays in the provision of assistance and reduce the number of groups who can provide assistance. With comprehensive sanctions in place, especially in authoritarian states, it is incredibly difficult to conduct humanitarian operations without having some form of contact with sanctioned individuals or organizations. For example, in rural parts of Syria, the only mobile networks is a sanctioned Syriatel. This means that NGOs cannot pay for data, forcing aid workers to pay out of pocket. There's also the issue with overcompliance. Due to the extensive scope of US sanctions, it is difficult to disentangle humanitarian operations from sanctioned institutions. As a result, humanitarian organizations struggle to structure programs that reach a broad group of people and process funds without violating sanctions. Oftentimes, small organizations lack the funds to hire a specialist attorney, so they end up restricting their operations and reach in an attempt to avoid penalties. Overcompliance and the risk of accidentally violating US sanctions further imposes a chilling effect on necessary foreign partners, such as banks, medical suppliers, and shipping companies. These partners prefer to not work with any Syria-related organizations because it's so easy to accidentally deal with a sanctioned actor and face severe consequences. Also, many banks in Syria are government-owned and therefore sanctioned. This means that transferring money through these banks may also violate U.S. sanctions. Carter Center interviews with humanitarian workers in Syria indicate that overcompliance has inhibited their ability to transfer money and as a result, this has delayed their operations or completely halted in some cases. Even if the fund transfer arrives to the intended destination, a late arrival can completely derail a project due to rapid currency depreciation. For example, the delay of payment halted the reconstruction of nearly 200 apartments in 2019, forcing an international NGO to cover a $400,000 project extension cost. Sanctions also contribute significantly to negative humanitarian impacts on Syrian civilians. As we know, Syria's situation is shifting from strictly aid-based programs towards basic social services such as healthcare and education. And with broad sanctions in place, NGOs fear that some of their projects may not meet the definition of humanitarian work and may be considered as reconstruction project and thus violate sanctions. Additionally, supporting key services is often viewed as legitimizing the government of Syria. Donors often hesitate to repair water pumps or electricity networks, fearing the work may not meet the definition of humanitarian work, despite their clear impact on vital services such as bread production. In summary, sanctions threaten humanitarian efforts in Syria from several perspectives, including challenges with licensing, overcompliance, channels for transferring funds, and the potential for early recovery projects. Thanks to each of you for that. I'm going to pick up where you left off, Annie, and ask about COVID, which ravaged the populations of each of the nations that you have studied. It seemed that sanctions took on a kind of draconian turn with the United States and humanitarian agencies not being on the same page about how much and how easily COVID relief could be delivered to people on the ground, whether it be Syria, Venezuela, or Iran. Many rightly accused the U.S. at the time of maximum pressure of obstructing directly the flow of medical relief. In each of your case studies, what were these hurdles to humanitarian relief for COVID, and why has it been so difficult to leap over them to provide medical assistance? Annie, let's go back to you for this one. 
to start us off. Syria is of particular concern given the damage inflicted on its healthcare system during years of conflict. And while sanctions do not directly target the health sector, it has been indirectly affected by sanctions imposed on other sectors in Syria. In general, many goods needed for agriculture, school, hospital reconstruction, and sanitation are classified as dual-use items, which may violate U.S. or EU sanctions. So, for example, the EU placed sanctions on chlorine exports to Syria, as it can be used to make chemical weapons. However, chlorine is also used for sanitation and water purification, measures that are particularly necessary when attempting to control a pandemic. One of the best practices we, we heard at the onset of the pandemic is to wash our hands thoroughly, yet in parts of the countries in Syria, Syrians do not have running water. Humanitarian organizations are unable to implement such repairs due to guidelines set by donors that restrict infrastructure repair as it falls under reconstruction. So for example, 46% of war damaged medical facilities in Syria need repairs in order to operate Yet sanctions prohibit infrastructure repair as it constitutes reconstruction. This means that these hospitals cannot treat COVID patients or just patients in general. However, it is important to note that there has been progress on this front. And recently on June 17, the Office of Foreign Assets Control released a general license number 21 exempting COVID-19 related activities from sanctions. We have not followed up with humanitarian organizations for information on how this is actually working in practice. Nevertheless, this is a small step signaling a new approach and thinking around the unintended impacts of sanctions on civilians and ways to safeguard humanitarian organizations operating in sanctioned countries. Francisco, can you tell us about Venezuela? So in the case of Venezuela, something that we have to remember is that there is a very important foreign policy decision, which sometimes people confused with sanctions and which is related to sanctions, that has had a very significant effect. And it's the fact that the government that has the control of the territory, the government of Nicolás Maduro, is not the same government as is recognized by the United States, by Europe, and many of the country's trading partners. And this has significantly impeded the mobilization of resources by the government, which government action is key in any case of dealing in any country that is trying to deal with COVID. So the Venezuelan government has had significant trouble accessing funds for an issue that is not directly one of sanctions, but is one that we should conceive of and conceptualize as related to the actions, the foreign policy actions that other countries take to address the Venezuela's political crisis, which is the same thing that they're using sanctions for. So it's almost like another variety of sanctions, deciding to recognize Guaido instead of recognizing Maduro, because among the consequences of that, it means that the Venezuelan government is blocked from accessing its funds deposited in U.S. banks or in European banks. So this recognition problem adds another layer of complications. And we saw that very clearly in Venezuela's attempt to access COVAX, which is the international entity that is being used to channel vaccines to low-income countries, particularly those that haven't been able to sign contracts with the large uh, pharmaceutical companies that are uh, suppliers of COVID vaccines. The Venezuelan government had significant delays uh, and had in its payments to COVAX because it wasn't able to find an acceptable way to route the funds 
through U.S. banks. And that's because U.S. banks considered that any transaction carried out by the Maduro government is technically a money laundering operation because the Maduro government is not supposed to be handling Venezuelan government funds. The only one that's supposed to be handling them is the Guaido government. And the Guaido administration and the Maduro administration were unable to reach an agreement as to how to handle these funds. In principle, they started negotiating about them, but in the end, those negotiations broke down. So that means that there was a transaction, for example, for $10 million that was blocked by Swiss banks precisely because of this issue, precisely because of the problems of recognition. Ultimately, the transaction went through, but it led to a significant delay in Venezuela's ability to access vaccines. We're also seeing more generally the overcompliance problem. We're seeing significant difficulties in private sector firms and humanitarian agencies that want to carry out operations in Venezuela. Venezuela's economy has become completely toxified. And that means that banks shun transactions with Venezuelan actors. They close down bank accounts of uh, Venezuelans whom they feel there is even a very small chance that they're related to the government. And because it's so costly to find out, to really investigate whether a certain person is indirectly related to the government, then they just take the more extreme action of saying, we won't process transactions by Venezuelan entities. We uh, won't open accounts by Venezuelan persons, or we'll close those accounts by Venezuelan persons. So once the, the economy becomes completely toxified, what you start seeing is that many private sector providers start completely shunning relations with the economy, deciding to cut down their operations in uh, Venezuela for risk of doing business with the government. And that has tremendous effects on the capacity, not just of the government, but also of the private sector to undertake any of the actions that are essential in such a response. So to build on Francisco's, I think, excellent description of, you know, why a government not being able to access resources like foreign exchange reserves would inhibit their ability to respond to a public health crisis like the pandemic. I think what's interesting about the Iran case is that it tells us that even if there had not been some kind of dispute over exactly what uh, leaders had uh, the access to uh, Venezuela's wealth for this use, that doesn't necessarily mean that the funds would have been more accessible or easier to use. In the case of Iran, there is no ambiguity that the uh, government of the Islamic Republic controls the country's foreign exchange reserves. But it's precisely for that purpose, and because uh, the key government entities such as the central bank are under U.S. secondary sanctions, that, uh, as Francisco described, banks around the world uh, basically shun or refuse to process those transactions on behalf of Iran, even in the instances where that trade is demonstrably for humanitarian purposes. And so this was really a major issue for Iran from an early point in the pandemic, where basically Iran suddenly had a need to purchase a lot more, let's say, personal protective equipment, PPE, and a lot more medication and eventually vaccines when those became available. But it was not able to ramp up its purchases for two reasons. One is because many suppliers were unwilling to engage with Iran or put Iran at the back of the line because of the incredible difficulty of determining who the end users of their products would be, who the actual buyers were, 
And conducting that due diligence that Francisco pointed out is very onerous and costly. And in addition to that, Iran basically couldn't, even if it did have those suppliers, make payments happen in a quick enough way. And so although Iran was one of the first countries to become a major epicenter of COVID-19, it really was at the back of the line when it came to uh, getting significant imports of these materials. And it was not until many months into the pandemic that basically those shortages that many countries saw in the early part of of their experience with COVID-19 were kind of alleviated in Iran. But even when goods weren't in short supply, again, going back to the point I made at the beginning about how Iran is a slightly different case from Venezuela and Syria, the availability of goods was less maybe of an issue than the affordability of goods. And so generally speaking, what happened with the pandemic is that you had the shock of the pandemic on Iran's economy and the economic impact of lockdowns and certainly the extraordinary public health crisis. And that was really compounding the underlying economic weakness that had been kind of induced in Iran's economy because of the sanctions. And so suddenly, ordinary Iranians are dealing with these twin crises. And the government naturally was uh, pretty ineffective in navigating both crises at once. And we got a debate in the Iran case. And this goes back to, again, something Francisco said about the difference between whether it is mismanagement or sanctions that are causing these negative outcomes. And, you know, many people pointed out early on that Iran was experiencing probably worse humanitarian outcomes than it should, given the additional impact of sanctions on the ability of the government to respond. Defenders of sanctions or those that were skeptical of Iran, of claims from Iranian officials or Iranian doctors, pointed out that goods that Iran needs for its COVID-19 response are exempt from uh, sanctions. So there's nothing technically preventing those goods from being traded. But for, as Annie explained, issues like overcompliance and issues like the complexity of having many designated entities in a country means that for aid organizations, for Iran's public health sector, for private sector importers of medical goods, it was basically a a minefield to try and figure out how to get these goods into the country. And even when those supply chains were identified, the goods were more expensive than they probably needed to be. And what's concerning is that in all of this time, while Iran has been contending with the pandemic, the U.S. government has essentially failed to recognize that its position on the basically total freeze of Iranian foreign exchange reserves is a major contributor to these problems. Because Iran doesn't have access to those funds in a way, in much the same way that the Venezuelan government, whether it's the opposition or Maduro's government, doesn't have access to those funds, it really hobbles the ability to respond to these kinds of crises. And so I think in the case of Iran, it's a really good example of how even when you don't have shortages necessarily, delays and issues around the affordability of medicine and medical goods can be sufficient on their own, especially in a case such as a pandemic, to lead to really devastating outcomes, including, I think, arguably greater loss of life in Iran than probably would have happened had there been a more proactive approach to making sure humanitarian trade took place. 
Thanks to each of you on those explanations. Very good detail. Let's maybe even push to a little bit more of the positive and the possible. As each of you know, on October 18, the United States Treasury released its much-anticipated sanctions review. This brief document was meant to convey the centrality of economic sanctions in U.S. foreign policy, but it also emphasized the need to rethink these negative humanitarian impacts of sanctions. And there was an outright declaration by the Biden administration that it was committed to developing strategies and techniques for mitigating the civilian harm that sanctions might cause. How realistic is it to mobilize strong and effective sanctions while also ensuring that their bite in light of the average civilians or harm that civilians experience could be quickly repaired? I'd like to hear the views of each of you on this. Francisco, maybe you should start us off. I think that the basic problem is that these sanctions that we're looking at are really part of a foreign policy approach that was designed as what was called the maximum pressure approach. And the whole idea of maximum pressure was that you were going to put economic pressure on the government target until they actually gave way, until they conceded. And that if they didn't concede to the U.S.'s demands, then that pressure was going to be increased. So the whole idea of making these sanctions targeted really went out the window with the idea of maximum pressure. So the whole irony is that in principle, these are supposed to be targeted sanctions. They're designed as if they were targeted sanctions. The U.S. Office of Foreign Assets Control, effectively what it does is that it designates particular entities. It doesn't impose an embargo on the whole economy. There is no impediment, for example, on Venezuela exporting oil to the U.S., there's simply a designation by OFAC of the state-owned uh, national oil company. It just turns out that as a matter of Venezuelan law and as a matter of the Venezuelan constitution, that same state-owned oil company has a monopoly of oil exports. So designating it, putting it on the OFAC list is exactly the same thing as imposing an oil embargo on the country. I'd like to go back to, you know, there, there's something really interesting that came out in a book published by John Bolton, who was a national security advisor to uh, former President Donald Trump, when they were discussing the adoption of Venezuelan oil sanctions, Bolton's words in that discussion when he advocated for these sanctions was, why don't we go for a quick win here? And the, the idea was that if they could put enough economic pressure on the government, then they could oust Maduro from power. So it's a typical plan of the U.S. having a plan A and not having a plan B. Uh, they weren't able to drive Maduro from power, but then the sanctions continued having the effect that they have had on the Venezuelan economy and deepening uh, the Venezuelan contraction. So what really needs to change here is that we have to go back to a conception in which the sanctions are designed uh, and are thought of as and are implemented in a way that protects the Venezuelan people, that they, they're not thought of as putting more pressure on the Venezuelan people so that they will change the regime, but they're really designed so as to insulate the Venezuelan uh, people so that we go back to having truly targeted sanctions. These are not targeted sanctions. They're sanctions that are aimed at the capacity of the government of carrying out some of the basic functions that it needs to do and it needs to carry out in society. So then when the U.S. Uh, comes out and says, 
Well, but technically, as Jar was saying, there are exceptions for health and humanitarian goods, and you're not restricted from buying all the all uh, the goods necessary to handle the humanitarian crisis. It's kind of the equivalent of if you fire somebody and then tell them, oh, don't worry that you just lost your job because you can still buy whatever you can. There's no restriction on what you can buy. Well, the only restriction is that they no longer have an income uh, with which to pay for those things. So if you're targeting the revenue of the government and you're targeting the revenues of the nation, then this is going to inevitably have huge humanitarian impacts. And the only way to correct that is to change the design from the start for these policies not to target the revenues of the government and not to target get the capacity of the government to carry out its basic functions. I totally agree with Francisco's kind of framing of this. And, and it was very much, I think, my conclusion, having looked at the Iran case and trying to kind of un- disentangle where exactly Uh, U.S. policy was failing here. And my sense is that, as Francisco noted, there's a choice that needs to be made about what sanctions are. And in the title of my paper, you know, I went so far as to basically say that sanctions are currently, in the way that they're being applied in places like Iran and Venezuela, a weapon. And particularly in the case of Iran, they're an inflation weapon. They are intended to create this basically economic phenomenon that serves to reduce the well-being of ordinary people. And U.S. policymakers have a choice, first, to redefine the goals of sanctions and the goal of trying to basically break the resolve of a government by reducing state capacity, by pitting the people against the government. You know, that is never, I think, in my view, a goal that is conducive to diplomacy. And so we really need to have a rethinking here about whether or not sanctions are going to be a tool of statecraft that serves diplomacy, or are they going to be a tool basically of warfare that serves U.S. national security interests through more destructive means? And for now, it seems relatively unclear where the U.S. is going to fall on that divide. I think part of the reason why is that sanctions are incredibly kind of seductive as a tool for U.S. policymakers that have a more hawkish outlook, individuals maybe like John Bolton, but don't want to take the ownership of the much more politically fraught decision of actually going to war with another country. And so sanctions are used as this kind of clinical approach that you can claim to be targeted, you can claim to be low cost, but obviously, as we see in these three cases, have impacts on the target countries that are akin to the impacts that we would see in a military conflict. So that's one thing here is, you know, what is the goal of sanctions going to be? And are we willing to fundamentally rethink the use of sanctions in light of a much more kind of considerate, thoughtful, humane set of goals? And the second component is, to the extent that we do agree that those goals are in place, are we willing to, on an ongoing basis, monitor the use of sanctions and basically police ourselves, as far as US policymakers are concerned, into making sure that even if it is not our intention, these negative consequences aren't uh, manifesting in the target countries. And so in the context of my paper, one of the things that I was looking at is to the extent that we acknowledge that inflation is this negative consequence of sanctions that inherently affects ordinary people and not the government. And to the extent that you know, basically hitting, let's say, government's access to foreign exchange reserves 
does relatively little to change the power of government uh, to engage in the maybe the malign behaviors that are a concern for U.S. national security, but does a lot to change whether or not that the targeted government can deliver the basic services that Francisco was describing, are we going to be able to sort of say, look, there are, nest, there are limits to the extent to which we are comfortable with sanctions inducing things like persistent high inflation? And if we recognize that there are limits, are we able to calibrate US sanctions policy to make sure that if we think things are edging towards those limits and we're about to move into a situation where the harms are becoming unacceptable in relation to the goal, in relation to how we're supposed to be approaching sanctions, we're actually willing to dial back sanctions even as they remain in place. And so as one US official has told me before, the problem with sanctions policy right now is that it's a one-way ratchet. We only ever tighten sanctions, but we never actually give consideration to the need to reduce sanctions impacts even in the course in which we are still remaining committed to the sanctions policy. So it might be before there's some diplomatic breakthrough, we might recognize that, well, we're causing too much harm. This harm is not going to help us achieve the diplomatic goal. Let's dial it back for a time so that we don't end up causing more harm uh, without actually getting ourselves closer to the diplomatic outcome we should be aiming for. So those sorts of decisions need to be factored into sanctions policy. And, you know, there's been some indication, obviously, there have been some attempts to kind of create these breaks in the system that would allow us to kind of put the uh, slow down the impact of sanctions if things are getting out of hand. But none of that has been institutionalized. And I think that's an area where there's enormous opportunity for basically policy innovation and if sanctions are going to be a tool of diplomacy, it's imperative we start thinking that way. Picking up on uh, Francisco and Yar's response on the need to rethink uh, sanctions policy, there is an urgent need for a concerted international effort to improve the effectiveness of humanitarian exceptions. And there are immediate actions that we can take. One would be simplification of OFAC licensing practices that make it difficult for U.S. businesses and humanitarian actors to comply with sanctions. We can grant a new licensing arrangements or the extension of exceptions for the transfer of particular goods related to agriculture, food supply, medicines, and medical equipment, and minimizing de-risking and overcompliance and easing restrictions off remittance payments, which account for an estimated $8.5 billion USD per year or 30% of Syria's current GDP, and they are vital for early recovery. Overall, I think more exchanges with U.S. officials is needed to explain the depth of harm sanctions are having in Syria and to help officials identify ways to address these key issues. Either way, the U.S. should rethink its approach so that it no longer confuses humanitarian relief for the Syrian people with its position on the Assad government. You each have given us quite a great array of possibilities here out of the Treasury review, but maybe we can conclude with me asking you or putting you in a tough spot of, if you had the ear of the Biden administration, is there a specific remedy or remedies to operationalize more humane sanctions in, in your case? And maybe even, is there a way we can flip sanctions inside out and thinking about ways they can be used to better incentivize changes in the behavior that they were originally imposed to stimulate. So I'm going to answer this question in a kind of 
maybe roundabout way. But I think when it comes to starting to grapple with these issues, the Biden administration needs to take one case and really make it its test bed for getting some of these policies right. And I actually think that that case should be Afghanistan. There's a lot of complex politics around the, certainly the Iran case, the Syria case, the Venezuela case. And Afghanistan is a place where I think broadly speaking, the, across the political spectrum in the US, across you know, the international community, there's an awareness of a responsibility to try and mitigate the forthcoming humanitarian crisis. And what's concerning for me is that that crisis is in many ways a product of the U.S. basically stumbling into a sanctions program following the Taliban sort of uh, ascendancy and and the Taliban taking control of, of Afghanistan's central government. And we are seeing basically the same things that have happened in Syria, Venezuela, and Iran, where the U.S. moves to freeze the Taliban's access to Afghanistan's foreign exchange reserves and in doing so, essentially applies a blanket set of sanctions on the country's economy, because as Francisco described for the Venezuela case, they were preventing the capacity of the state to deliver basic services and resources on which, particularly in Afghanistan, people fundamentally depend. And uh, in parallel to that, as Annie was describing in the Syria case, you have the same phenomenon where this reimposition of sanctions, this ambiguity about the status of the Taliban as a designated entity means that humanitarian organizations really struggle uh, to get money in and out of the country and to conduct the services, life-saving services that are important there. And this even extends to UN agencies uh, that face significant operational challenges. So my advice to the Biden administration would be, look, We know where these problems are. We have seen in the Syria case, the Iran case, the Venezuela case, and others, where sanctions impact uh, basic humanitarian operations. And complex politics might be a weak excuse, but an excuse nonetheless that U.S. policymakers invoke in each of those cases for why they couldn't do more. They couldn't take a more creative, innovative approach to trying to mitigate these harms. But in the case of Afghanistan, I don't think those complex politics are quite there in the same way. It's very black and white that if there isn't a concerted international effort to get increased amounts of aid into the country in the coming months, you will have a possibly historic famine and a massive refugee crisis. And it all stems from essentially this choice of the U.S., and partners to kind of withdraw from the country. So it's a choice that in some ways we have made to take our presence out and to take our support out that has proven very consequential. I think, you know, there is a growing awareness that unless something is done, and that would require some degree of cooperation with the Taliban, understanding where their capacity is actually important for mitigating humanitarian crises, we're going to then fall into this another basically situation where we stumbled into a sanctions program. It wasn't even that deliberate in this case, and we are seeing the humanitarian costs unfold. So my advice for the Biden administration would be, this is the area where you need to act fast. And I think you can act fast because you are not going to get the same kind of opposition from certain corners in Washington about moving swiftly to avert a deeper crisis. And from the lessons of those innovative mechanisms, whether it's the licensing Annie described or freeing access to reserves in controlled ways, 
those lessons can then be applied to the other cases and we'll have greater confidence that those mechanisms will work. The U.S. should consider engaging in a dialogue to complement its sanctions and allow for confidence-building measures to be put on the table for action. At the same time, the sanctioned party needs to be prepared to undertake some reforms. In the case of Syria, sanctions have failed to produce the intended result. The rationale behind implementation of sanctions was to bring about behavior change from the Syrian government by applying maximum economic pressure on the country and its leaders. There is no evidence that the maximum pressure sanctions imposed on Syria have produced or are likely to produce the intended goal. We have not seen any behavior change. Assad has ignored pressures to reform and to devolve power and the loyalty of the military and security services additionally boost the regime's stance. Not only did sanctions in Syria backfire, but comprehensive sanctions, as we've discussed today, have, had, uh, have also had disastrous direct and indirect in impacts on the Syria's economy and its population. Sanctions may be the only leverage left to the international community. So new thinking is needed. I think a more uh, nuanced implementation of sanctions, which combines threat and emphasizes potential sanction relief at a later stage, would strengthen their impact and efficacy. This would transform sanctions from a purely punitive pressure tool into a transformational approach, providing incentives for leaders to carry out reforms. It translates into reality by incorporating expiration dates with sanctions, engaging in more meticulous planning and policy development, as well as integrating periodic reviews of sanctions, piecemeal incentives, and sanction relaxation, if timed correctly and tied to specific objectives, can yield positive results. They can further enlarge the positive outcomes by surpassing reforms to reach peace-building objectives. So Venezuela's crisis is quite complex because there are two distinct decisions here. There are sanctions and then there's government recognition, the decision to recognize the Guaido government, which is different from the one that has control over the country. And these two decisions are interrelated in both their causes and their effects. So fixing the problem actually requires addressing both of them. If you only lifted sanctions on Venezuela, still the Maduro government would not be able to access its funds abroad, and still it wouldn't be able to export oil to the U.S. because it is not the legally recognized government. It's not the government that, from a legal standpoint, has the ability to represent the state-owned oil company. So what you actually need is a concerted approach in which there is support for dialogue and that means support for negotiations between the parties to Venezuela's political conflict. So only if the sides to the conflict are able to reach agreements, reach humanitarian agreements, allowing them to devote resources to dealing with the pandemic, to direct them to the purchases of goods and essentials and medicines necessary to deal with Venezuela's humanitarian crisis, is that you're going to be able to start getting out of this situation that the country is trapped in now. Now, what we have to remember is that this is a country whose links to the international economy, whose trade and financial links to the rest of the world have been severed as a result of uh, sanctions and these other uh, statecraft decisions, such as the recognition of the Guaido government. So in order to revert this, you need humanitarian agreements, such as the creation of an oil for essentials agreement that allows Venezuela to reaccess global oil markets in the context of a program that ensures that those goods bought with the resources generated through such a program are directed at addressing the needs of Venezuelans. 
It's also, I think that the U.S. could it could do a lot more if it really had the willingness to address the humanitarian situation in these countries. For example, the issue of overcompliance. OFAC has a hands-off uh, relationship with overcompliance where basically it doesn't appear to see it as, as its problem. OFAC could issue very clear guidance with respect to overcompliance, for example, by issuing a list of entities that are pre-cleared that banks can be it can feel safe in carrying out transactions with. And I think that there's also a need to distinguish explicitly between strategic and non-strategic sanctions. And this is something that has really become problematic because sanctions are being used in two ways. Sanctions are being used as a bargaining tool to try to induce changes in conduct, but sanctions are also being used to punish violations of human rights and corruption in countries that do not have a working judicial system or where the judiciary is captured by the same elites that you want to punish. And it makes sense for the international community to want to do something about it. It makes sense for the international community to want to punish people who are engaged in heinous acts and where the citizens of those countries don't have a way to defend themselves against those people. But that's very different from the strategic role of sanctions. It's very different from the role of sanctions when they are used to try to induce a change in conduct. And I think that if the U.S. were able to signal more clearly when it's using sanctions strategically and when there is a credible promise to withdraw them if there is a change in conduct and differentiate those from those cases in which sanctions are being used to substitute for the lack of working of a justice system in those countries, it would do a lot towards enhancing the strategic value of targeted sanctions. Well, I'm sad that we have to bring this marvelous discussion and your contributions to a close in this podcast. But I do want to thank you, each of you, but also the kind of collective amplification you've given to the essays you've provided in this edition of Peace Policy and uh, the real insight into policy recommendations that moves beyond even some of the things we were able to have in, in that edition. So we conclude this cast with a thank you and look forward to further conversations and events that lie ahead. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today's conversation on economic sanctions is a companion to a forthcoming issue of peace policy, the Croc Institute's quarterly policy publication. On December 6th, you will be able to read all four articles in this edition at peacepolicy.nd.edu. On December 6th, you can also attend a virtual event addressing the debate around the humanitarian impact of economic sanctions. Learn more and register to attend at go.nd.edu slash sanctions event. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.